Well, why don't you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 2 from verse 13. Matthew chapter 2 from verse 13. If this is your first time or you're just popping in today, um, we've been going through this series, Jesus, the King Who Saves. Uh, when you go through Matthew and you realize how many different themes there are and stuff, and you try and work out a topic, you just go with that. It's all about Jesus, <laughs> the King who saves. It's nice and simple, and it is, in fact, what Matthew is trying to show us in the end. And um, yeah, we are in chapter 2, verse 13 now. And as I said last week, we have skipped the last bit of chapter 1, which Tony will start just touching on a bit tonight at Carol's, and we'll be looking at on Christmas Day on Saturday morning, 9.30. So Matthew chapter 2 from verse 13, this is kind of after the birth of Jesus, you'll see. And it, as I was looking at it, it's quite tricky. Uh, and many people don't actually deal with this even in Matthew. So I feel maybe I've chewed off too much, but we'll see how it goes. So here we go. Matthew chapter 2 from verse 13, I'm reading from the ESV. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men we saw from last week. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father God, we know that Matthew was written to Jewish Christians, but we also know that it was written for us, not necessarily to us, but for us. And as we look at this part of Matthew, it might be a bit tricky to see what is the relevance for us today, but there's a reason it's in the Bible. And we know that when you give us your word, it does not return to you empty-handed. Just like the rain comes down and does its thing before it goes back up into the clouds to come down again. So Lord, as we look at this passage, it might be a bit tricky. We might have to do some digging and searching. Would you show us your truth? and its wonder and beauty, and how extraordinary Jesus is, even amidst all the ordinary things. Please speak to us, Lord. Help us to switch our mind on as we 
think deeply about things and follow all the little leads to this beautiful uh, truth about Jesus that we'll see today. Be with us now, Lord, we pray, for your good, for your glory and our good. Amen. Now, on Christmas Day in 2012, a gorgeous young adult lady opened up a gift from her boyfriend of five months. It was quite a big present, but as she opened it up, uh, it was all she could see was just these paper cutouts from magazines and advertising papers, things like uh, nail polish and shampoo and handbags and jewelry and probably some high heels and stuff like that, all things that she really liked. And as she ducked through all the rubbish, probably thinking, what the heck is this? She felt a small little thing down the bottom, uh, a box. You know, as she cleared all the paper, she saw a box that you might find a ring in. And she opened it up, and there inside of it wasn't a ring, ugh, but a note that said, meet me at City Beach at 7 p.m., exact details to follow. And that night after 7 p.m., Beck and I got engaged. Now, the, the reason... We've been married a long time, we've forgotten about the engagement. But the reason I start like this is because Christmas can sometimes feel a bit like that for us. As we look at the Bible to see this wonderful gift that God has given humanity. You know, when we, when we read passages like we've read today, uh, there seems to be a lot of detail that seems insignificant, or at least at first glance, we're not quite sure what to do with it or what's the point of it. A bit like all the paper cutouts in Beck's gift. But as we look more closely, there's often small bits of detail uh, with big promises associated with it. A bit like the engagement rings box, right? Even though it was small and even though there wasn't a ring in it, it was promising something big and beautiful in the future. And even if we look really, really closely, we only see God's gift in all of its fullness, not at Christmas, but really at Easter, So you'll have to wait till the end of the book of Matthew, a bit like Beck had to wait till the end of the day, and then another few months for the actual wedding. You see, we can't fully understand the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises without having a sneak peek at the end. And we have three promises slowly being fulfilled in our passage. So we'll we'll look further ahead a bit, not just to Jesus' birth and his early years, but to a bit later in his life. And hopefully you can see some of the richness of this passage that probably a Jew would have picked on really quickly. You know, it's a bit like getting a bike for Christmas. Have you gotten a bike for Christmas or a birthday? Uh, But particularly Christmas, as everyone heads out to the tree and we're going to do presents, there's this huge thing that everyone can see is a bike, right? You know, I think mine was just covered in a huge doona. Parents didn't even bother putting wrapping paper around it. And you could just see, oh, it's really obvious what that is. It's a bike. The only question is, whose bike is it? And what does it look like? And today we see God's gift to us wrapped in a bike like that. You know, we we can see much of its shape and we can get excited about the full reveal, but we can't quite see it till Easter and later on in Jesus' life. But we're going to have a few sneak peeks, okay? So let's get stuck into it. What sort of gift has God given us? Well, the first thing is, he's given us the gift of a faithful son. And we see that in verses 13 to 15. Uh, As our passage starts, we see the magi or the wise men, as we saw last week. They leave baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph. We see that there in verse 13. And an angel of the Lord then appears to Joseph in a dream 
and he tells him to leave for Egypt quickly with his little family. And we talked about angels appearing in dreams and lots of supernatural things that happened around Jesus' birth last week. So if you want to have a listen to that, feel free to chase up that sermon. But King Herod is about to seek and destroy Jesus. That's why they have to go. This is, this is the same Herod that, that, that said to the Magi last week, hey, when you find this baby Jesus, can you come and tell me so I can go and worship him? Yeah, just a flat-out lie. Herod was scared of this little baby Jesus who was born king of the Jews and who will shepherd God's people forever, as we saw last week. And as Herod has done so much in his life, He wants to destroy Jesus because he's a threat to his reign and he's a threat to his ongoing dynasty that he wants. But God is way ahead of him. I mean, there's so much um, interesting uh, bits here where Herod's the one that wants to kill Jesus, but he's the one that ends up dead in the passage. He's the one that wants to control things, but ultimately God is in control. God is way ahead of him, much more than one or two steps. In fact... You know, God doesn't just get Jesus to flee to Egypt as a reaction to what Herod is doing. He's doing it proactively to fulfill his promises and show us the gift that Jesus really is. Look there at verse 15, halfway through. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Jesus had to spend a stint in Egypt so that God can call him out from there. Remember how God had previously brought someone else out from Egypt? Um, he, he brought Israel out from there, who he refers to as his son as well. But Israel was unfaithful, disobedient, rebellious. God managed to get them out of Egypt, right? Let's not get that bit wrong. But he struggled to get Egypt out of them. That's what we see. They, they weren't physically enslaved anymore, but their hearts were still enslaved to the gods and the idols and the unholy ways of Egypt. That's what we see as we read Hosea 11. That's quoted in our passage. Um, even just looking at the next verse, have a look at this. Hosea uh, 11 verse 1 is the bit that's quoted. As you can see, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And look at verse 2. The more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The people of Israel, God's people, were very much like the Egyptians in their worship. Remember how they also had to sacrifice a lamb in their place. You know, during the 10th plague, uh, the 10th and final plague that took the firstborn son, that was because they were just as sinful as the Egyptians they were unfaithful to God, so he made a way possible for them to be, uh, for him to pass over their sins uh, so, in the place, so that a lamb could die in their place, and he can do that. And even after that amazing rescue, think, uh, seeing all of those ten plagues, seeing God just smash down each of the Egyptian idols, you think they would just be fully on board, loving God, following him, but they still whinged as they went away, constantly wanting to go back. They made a golden calf, even as Moses went up to the mountain, to finalize this new relationship with God. As Tony, I think in a sermon a while back, it's kind of like cheating on the wedding night, just as it's all being made official. 
And the whole story of Israel is like this, actually, on repeat. As you read through the whole Bible. When you read it, you get sick of it, don't you? Or is that just me? When you read it, you just, you just think, gee, how stupid are these people? Really? You know, when are they just going to listen? When are they going to see how bad life goes when you're serving false gods and idols? And, and, and when you give up on God, and, and in fact, how good it is when you do listen to Him and follow the true God. And yet they keep turning back. They keep turning back. They make promises and they break them over and over again. And God calls them back again and they keep running away and making a mess of life again and again. And as you read it, you think, gee, the same thing over and over again. What's wrong with these people? But you know what? As we look at Israel, we're not simply looking at a bunch of Israels, people who are, uh, you know, Jews. We're looking at a representation of ourselves, of all humanity. Just as they were unfaithful, so we too are unfaithful. Think how often God calls out to people to come to him, like we saw in Hosea 11. He does it with beautiful sunsets. You know, people see it and they think, surely there must be something bigger. I'll better finish off my food. Where's that beer that I had? He does it in moments of overwhelming joy that disappears like that so that we can go to him, the one that wants to give us everlasting joy. But we don't come. He calls out when parents are holding a newborn baby that they did not design or create. He calls out with, with, um, with worldwide pandemics, reminding us of how quickly we can lose control and even lose our lives. He keeps calling out. And the more he calls out, the more we run away. How many people have you seen through COVID going, I see what's happening. God's calling me. I'm going to go to him. And don't just think of people out there, right, who don't have any faith. Think of yourself. I'm thinking of myself. How often has God called you to give up on the pleasure of a sin and to find joy in him instead? How often has he called you to come closer? Hey, hey, I want to, listen. I want to hear from you. Can you pray a bit more? I'd love to talk to you. Can you pick up your Bible a bit more? How often has God called you to be like him, loving others sacrificially, and yet you choose to worship comfort and yourself and not listen? How often has God, God, God called you to serve in his church and you keep coming up with excuses just to keep serving yourself and your idols? You see, we're all unfaithful and disobedient, running away from God when he calls us to come near. We all are like that. But here in Jesus is the gift of the faithful son, unlike us, the one who will be called out of Egypt and he will come and he will leave all of it behind. Egypt will have no grip on his heart. He will love the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind, with all of himself. And you know what? Jesus doesn't just do it for himself but for all the unfaithful ones like you and I. Think about it. It begins right when he gets baptized in Matthew 3, our next chapter. You know how John the Baptist invites people to come and be baptized? And who is it for? It's for all the unfaithful people, right, who's run away, who's turned away from God. And he says, come back, 
Confess your sins. Be real and be baptized. And many people flock to John. People like me. People like you. But the weird thing is Jesus goes too. And he hasn't even been unfaithful to his father. And actually, when he, when he gets to John, what does John say? Not quite in these words, but John says, Whoa, whoa, Jesus, what's going on here? You're, you're, paf- you're perfect. You're faithful. You, you're the right guy. You know, you're the perfect person in the flesh. You're meant to be baptizing me, not me, you. But right there at the beginning, Jesus shows us. As he gets baptized, he insists on it that he, uh, at, his whole ministry is about associating with the unfaithful people. Yeah? And, and then in Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. Very famous passage for 40 days like Israel was for 40 years. He was, you remember Israel, the other son, the unfaithful one? Jesus mimics that. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days. And unlike them, he didn't fail. He wasn't unfaithful, but faithful because he did not sin when he was tempted. And he did what Israel couldn't do and what you and I cannot do. And finally, at the end of Jesus' life, we see a mob hand him over aggressively to the authorities. We see this in Matthew 27. They hand him over to Pilate and the authorities. Pilate investigates him. He pulls him aside at one point and he comes back to the people and he says, look, I find nothing wrong with this man. He's not guilty. He's completely innocent. And he wants to set him free. And the mob keeps shouting and they keep shouting. So he gets another guy, Barabbas. Do you remember Barabbas? He was, he was unfaithful. He was a sin. He was already in prison. There's a reason he was in there. And he puts them both before the crowd. And he says, which one would you want me to set free? And they demand that Barabbas be set free and that Jesus be crucified. And right there, the guilty and the unfaithful Barabbas get set free when the faithful Jesus, perfectly obedient, is crucified. There we see the swapping of places. And that's the heart of Christianity right there. That's the beauty of the gift of the faithful son. We, the unfaithful, escape our due punishment as we trust in Jesus. And him, the faithful son, takes it upon himself. So as we trust in him, we are now viewed and treated as faithful children of God and received as such. That's so good. So this Christmas, uh, don't be afraid to ponder your unfaithfulness. Because if you don't think you're unfaithful and if you don't wrestle with that and try and bring your unfaithfulness up to the fore, you're not going to see the beauty of the gift of the faithful son. In fact, ask God maybe to bring it to the fore so that you can bring it to Jesus. He'd love for you to experience this gift uh, this Christmas. The gift that we maybe see vaguely at Christmas, but we know in its fullness what it looks like at the end of the book. The gift of his faithfulness counted as yours through faith. That's how you receive this gift, through faith in Jesus even as unfaithful ones. And I think there will be a bit of that tonight about the unfaithful ones coming to Jesus at carols. So come and join us for that. So that's the first one. The second one is this. Uh, in, in Matthew 2, we see the gift of a new covenant. We see this in verses 16 to 18. Now, as we read this, 
it's hard to kind of see anything positive in this middle section of our passage. In verses 16 to 18, you have Herod commanding the death of many innocent children under the age of two as a last resort to hopefully get rid of Jesus. Anyone with young kids, I think, really feel the weight of this section. I remember reading the, you know, the story of Moses with Max one night, and I've read it a thousand times. And we just had, I think it was Zoe or Leo, and I just started tearing up. See, as a parent with young kids, you feel this more. But all of us, I imagine, feel the huge injustice. You know, and trust me, as, as I read some of Herod's other killings that's not in the Bible, this is actually one of the least of his atrocities. If anyone thinks, you know, maybe this is a lie that Matthew's made up that didn't really happen because, you know, how could someone really be this horrible? Well, go and read up on your Roman history. Herod the Great, as he was known, was a horrible man. But the question is, why is this even in here? And Dani, why are you talking about this at Christmas? You know, what is the murder of these poor children even fulfilling? And, And why was it even promised, was it? Where in the Bible is verse 18 from? But Matthew's readers would have had a lot of these questions definitely going around in their heads. Where's that promise, they probably would have thought. And as they looked for it, they would have seen the importance of these three very sad verses. And I hope you can see it this morning too. That quote in verse 18 is from Jeremiah 31, a chapter actually that a lot of us, I think, know at least a little bit of it. Look here, here's a little bit of it uh, that we often quote. Uh, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now you might think, Man, that sounds really positive. You know, like the, the, the killing of the kids is very negative. How do these two things even fit together? And that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. <laughs> Let me try and answer it. The reality is all of Jeremiah 31 is super positive. It's very positive, full of wonderful promises of God. Promises like they will be restored to their land. They will um, have their sins forgiven completely. They will no longer be punished for it anymore. They will live in peace and they will live in prosperity. And so on and so on it goes. And this all because of a new relationship that they're going to enjoy with God, which we saw there in Jeremiah 31. The, The promise of a new covenant where God's going to be doing something inside of them, in their hearts, making it new transforming them from the inside out. But as God makes these promises, there is this one negative. Only one verse out of 40 verses that's negative. And would you believe it? I don't know if Matthew made a mistake, but he quotes the one negative one. The verse in Jeremiah that's about pain and suffering is the verse where, 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 about what God's people were experiencing at the time that Jeremiah prophesied to them. It's a time with the, with the Assyrian and Babylonian exile and the pain that that causes. Just imagine it. Men were sent off to war and they were killed. And the ones that weren't killed were carried off as prisoners of war. 
young kids that weren't old enough to fight, but that showed any sign of strength or, you know, kind of um, a will, will to stand up were just taken away so that there can't be any strength built, any future army. They want to just take the generations away so that they are hopeless in the future. Even some of the young women would have been taken away for various uses as slaves. It was horrible. Parents would have literally lost their children uh, as they heard of their death or even saw it, or they would have experienced it and experienced their kids as good as dead because they would never have seen them again. But at least, at least, in all of the pain and suffering, there was hope. Hope of a new covenant. Hope of a better future. Hope of a deeper relationship with God. And what Matthew does in connecting this verse with the killing of the innocent children by Herod is to say that the new covenant is about to be brought in. You see, if the killing of, of, of these children by Herod is the fulfillment of that one negative verse of Jeremiah 31, then gee, there must be a whole lot of positive promises about to be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled and brought about by this baby, Jesus. You see, what makes this even more clear is how Jesus' life is portrayed. Did you kind of have some bells go off as we were reading it? It seemed almost a bit at times like you're reading the story of Moses. You see, you know Moses, the guy that brought in the old covenant? Moses escaped death during the massacre of many children, just like Jesus. Moses fled his country before having to come back to save his people, just like Jesus. You know, Jesus flees his country at the beginning of our passage, and at the end, he's back. Moses goes up on a mountain, and then he teaches people God's will and, and how to live under the covenant back then. And just, just like that, Jesus in Matthew 5, that's right, is going up a mountain and he's teaching the 12 disciples, just like Moses taught the 12 tribes of Israel, how to live under the new covenant. Moses wrote, oh man, this is becoming more and more clear. Moses wrote five books called the Torah, and Jesus has these five major teaching blocks in the book of Matthew that the whole book is structured around. I think that's saying that here is the new way to become part of God's people. Here is the new teaching. And so right here in the early years of Jesus, we already see he's the one greater than Moses, the one that will bring in a new covenant that will last forever and leave God's people transformed from the inside out. You know, just like you could only enter into a relationship with God back then through the Torah that was brought about by Moses back then, so now you can only enter into a relationship with God through Jesus. He is the giver and teacher of the new covenant. And we see this, in, you see, in this wonderful promise, uh, the wonderful promise in this pain of the murder of the children. Not long from actually this time, it's interesting to think about this, God experiences the pain of the death of his one and only son to bring about the new covenant. That's why he sent his son to be born in the flesh in Bethlehem. And that's why he kept him miraculously alive. Jesus to go and give up his life, dying on the cross, so that we might have a relationship with him. Isn't that wonderful? The gift of a new covenant that was brought about by Jesus. 
And if it is that this is the only way we can get to know God and have a relationship with him that will last forever, gee, it's a pretty damn good gift, isn't it? Through this new man, Jesus, the one greater than Moses. So that's the second gift. And the third point, really, from our passage is not so much about the gift, if you like, but it's about the wrapping paper in some way, if, if that makes sense. The third thing that we see in Matthew is that this great gift doesn't look very great. Have a look at it there in verses 19 to 23. As you've probably noticed already, each of these three sections that I've you know, put my points around, they finish with the idea of fulfillment. So this is the thing that happened, and as a result, this was fulfilled, and then they quote uh, from a prophet uh, that, you know, where they found this, the bit that was fulfilled back in the Old Testament. And as you've already seen this morning, it's only by going back to those quotes and understanding them in the original context that you actually understand its meaning in Matthew. And in verse 23, we have this again. Look at it with me. Verse 23 And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Did you see the pattern again? There is only one problem, though, quite a big problem, in fact. Um, There is no prophecy about Jesus being called a Nazarene because he's from Nazareth. And so how do we understand it? I don't know if you have one of the Bibles with those kind of notes and footnotes about where certain bits come from. There should be nothing there. There is no prophecy. And so how do we understand it? And part of the clue is, is to, under, to notice what he says there. Did you notice what it says? When it talks about it, it says, what was spoken by the prophets, not by a prophet, like the other quotes. Here in verse 23, we have a plural, prophets. And in fact, in all of Matthew, and Matthew loves giving lots of Old Testament quotes, this is the only one where it says, talks about a quote from the prophets in the plural. So this is not about any one quote. It's probably more about a theme found throughout the prophets about the Christ to come. And so I guess you've got to think about Nazareth. What is it about Nazareth that might lead us to this theme? Well, one of the things I think is that we know that Nazareth is not thought of very highly by others. Have a look in John. This is what it says. So Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, Hey, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Whoa, this is big news. How does he respond? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) It's like Nazareth, that's a dodgy place. Can anything good come from there? And again in Matthew, as we'll see a bit later in chapter 4, verse 15, the region that Nazareth is part of is called Galilee. And not just Galilee, but Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus is from a little backwater town that is in the northern part of kingdom. Uh, you know the northern tribes? You know how they were the ones that were unfaithful to God? And they kind of gave up on God and they kind of ran away. Jesus is from there. Jesus is from there. And last week we saw that he was born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem wasn't particularly popular either, but this is worse, friends. At least Bethlehem was right near Jerusalem, where all the faithful people were, the ones that were still trying to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Not not so with Nazareth. 
Nazareth wasn't even in Samaria next door. You know those guys that they frowned upon. It was beyond that in Galilee of the Gentiles where the unbelievers dominated. So Nazareth is quite ordinary and not thought of very well. And you know what? That's what we expect from God's forever king too, the Christ, isn't it? Think of passages like this, Isaiah 53, that we love to uh, use as well. This is talking about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a shoot out of dry ground. And look at this bit. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here's the point. The great gift of God in Jesus doesn't look very great at first glance. Jesus was a very ordinary man. I mean, for the first 30 years of his life, before he started his ministry, he was swinging a hammer for a living. He was a chippy, like I used to be. He never owned any property. He didn't wear flashy clothes. He didn't have huge biceps with tats all over them. He he didn't come from the big smoke. You know, and he didn't hang out with all the upper classes. You know, that's what drove the Pharisees nuts, that Jesus kept wanting to hang out with the ordinary people. He didn't even have a tomb when he died. He had to be buried by someone else in their new tomb. Luckily, he was only there for three days. Friends, as we come to Christmas, don't miss God's great gift in Jesus because it doesn't look very great. Don't miss it. Don't judge a book by its cover. Look more than skin deep as you look at Jesus again this Christmas. The the most famous man that's ever walked on the planet. There's something great about him. Don't miss it. Just like Beck had to dig around all the rubbish and cutouts I put in her Christmas present nine years ago to find the lead to the diamond ring, be willing to look beyond all the Jewish details that you that you might not get and follow the lead that leads to Jesus' greatness. He's the faithful son given to us and unfaithful people so that we can be restored. He's the one greater than Moses even who brings about a new covenant, not by the death of a lamb, but by his own death so that we might have a relationship with God and be restored again and never be judged for our wrongs. He alone can make us new from within, giving us obedient hearts that know and love our God and Saviour. Diamonds are found in the dirt. Pearls are found at the bottom of the ocean. The greatest gift of God of infinite worth is found in Jesus of Nazareth. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you so much for your word this morning. It might have been a bit of a struggle to chase these leads, to see the beauty of Jesus. But luckily, Lord, today is not the end. We pray that as we continue to wrestle with things over Christmas, we pray as we continue to come to listen to Matthew's account of Jesus, that you would show us more clearly and more clearly over time what a wonderful gift Jesus really was to us the gift of this faithful son that's just wrapped up in nappies as we celebrate Christmas, the gift of a new covenant as we watch him, and mainly being controlled by his parents at this point, but knowing that one day 
He will control everything. So Lord, be with us. Even though things might not look that impressive, we know Jesus is very, very great. Very, very beautiful. And so lead us in seeing that, Lord. Open up our eyes that we might not see like we tend to do. We see in the Old Testament with Samuel that you tell him the people look on the outside, but you look on the heart. Give us your eyes to see Jesus for who he really is and how great he is and that we would put our faith and trust in him this Christmas. We pray this all in his wonderful name. Amen.